Human dignity is a paramount issue in our culture, and it's imperative that Christians do whatever we can to stand for life. At the Evangelicals for Life conference, Russell Moore showed how the gospel calls us to be advocates for all of life. We hope this message equips you to stand for life. Well, if you would please turn your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. Hebrews, chapter 2, and I'd like for us to start reading with verse 9 and read down through verse 18. Hebrews 2, 9 through 18. And if you would, since these are the words of our God breathed out by the Holy Spirit and given to us for our instruction, would you please join me in standing out of reverence for the word of Christ? And the Holy Spirit says this, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin, That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil and deliver all of those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not to angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself suffered when tempted... He is able to help those who are being tempted. May God bless his word to us tonight. You may be seated. A few years after my wife and I had adopted our first two sons out of a Russian orphanage, we noticed that we were spending a lot of time in the emergency room. And our visits to the hospital had nothing to do with follow-up care from the orphanage. It had nothing to do with the adoption. It had to do with the fact that our oldest son turned out to be more of a daredevil than we ever imagined would be the case. And so when he was uh, barely even walking, we, we turned our, our attention away from him and he scurried up a tree until he got to a branch that could not support him, fell down, hit his head, had a concussion. And I said, Benjamin, what were you thinking? And he said, it seemed like a fun thing to do. And then a little while later, I noticed that the house next door, two-story house that had raised brick with crevices in it, that he had climbed up on this like Spider-Man and was dangerously high on this house. And I couldn't yell, get down without startling him. And so I had to calmly walk him down crevice by crevice by crevice and then say, Benjamin, what were you thinking? And he said, it seemed like a fun thing to do. And then he 
was on a bicycle going off of a ramp that he constructed with two super soaker water guns, hit his head, had a concussion, we're back in the ER, and he said it seemed like a fun thing to do. We had been in and out of the emergency room so many times that I was really afraid that Child Protective Services was going to come and start uh, investigating my house. I said to my wife, I've just written this book, Adopted for Life, the priority of adoption for Christian families and churches, and I'm afraid if we go to the emergency room one more time, I'm going to be writing a book on prison ministry called Indicted for Life. (laughs) Until one day, my wife had said to him, Benjamin, I need you to go out into the garage. We had a, a freezer that was out in the garage where she kept some things that she didn't need all the time. And she was making a recipe that called for ice cream. She said, I need you to go out and get some ice cream. Benjamin walked outside and knocked off of a shelf a glass vase. It shattered. He fell. He was barefoot. And his foot hit a shard of this glass. And so I had to take him back to the emergency room where I knew everybody on a first-name basis and where I had been pastoral and, and very fatherly and tender the previous times, this time I have to say I was exasperated. We waited forever. And we're back in the car. We're coming home. I think it was 3 o'clock in the morning. And I said to him, Benjamin, we have been to the emergency room five times this year for you, zero times for your brother. And so I don't want to hear it seemed like a fun thing to do. What are we going to do to keep this from happening? And he said, I guess not put the freezer outside in the garage. (laughs) Did not help me at all. And I said, I just have to get into a better attitude about this kid. So I sent him to bed. I went out to, to deal with the shards of glass. And I noticed that there were bloody footprints. I thought that's one more thing to clean up. Until I noticed that the bloody footprints went from the broken glass to the freezer and then turned around and went up the stairs. And I was melted in all of my irritation. But I thought, this little guy, even hurt, even bleeding, still carried out the little mission that his mother had given him to do. And I realized no matter how irritated I was, if if he had that sort of impulse and that sort of instinct and followed through on that for the rest of his life, he would be in a much better position than I am in terms of carrying through when there is hardship and when there is hurt. You and I are gathered here today in Washington, D.C., and we're here in a time in which we have to acknowledge that we are living in a world of divorce courts and abortion clinics and gas chambers. We are living in a time filled with pain and with suffering. And in all of that, we have been given a mission to be a gospel people. And it seems to me that as we gather together to talk about the sanctity of human life, we cannot think about the sanctity of human life and we cannot minister in an abortion culture if we do not keep at the forefront the cross of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, 
What we have to offer to the world is not our voting block. What we have to offer to the world is not our cultural influence. What we have to offer to the world is not our philosophical arguments. What we have to offer to the world is the gospel of freedom from condemnation. And if we lose sight of that, we have nothing else to offer. And this passage that we just read focuses us upon the cross. It shows us here how the cross defines human dignity. Writer of Hebrews is writing to these people gathered in these churches. And he says to them, you'll notice that the scripture says that God has put all things under the feet of humanity. But he says, but if you look around you'll notice that it does not seem as though all things are under his feet. We do not yet see everything under the dominion of humanity, but we see, he says, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. In this world where we have to gather together and argue for things that should not have to be argued, We should not have to travel to Washington, D.C. to say that every life is sacred and ought not to be violated by anyone else. It ought to be just as unnecessary for us to stand and to say these words that we should protect vulnerable children and their mothers. It should be as unnecessary to say these things as it is to say that gravity is real. And yet we live in a fallen world where even that has to be asserted and defended. And the writer of Hebrews says, we see Jesus, and notice what he says, crowned with glory and honor. And where do we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor? It is not in a moment of evident power. It is not in an explosion of visible light. We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because of the suffering of death. Now, brothers and sisters, this is why this is critical if we are going to be a pro-life people. The moment that the Bible identifies Jesus here as bearing glory, as bearing honor as being crowned with authority is the moment in which he is the most dependent. He is the most seemingly powerless. He is the most seemingly useless to the rest of the world. It is the moment in which our Lord Jesus had to be helped with the carrying of his own instrument of torture. It is the moment in which our Lord Jesus was having his beard ripped from his face as he's being beaten up by Roman soldiers. It's the moment where Jesus is lifted up, not by his own power, but by the power of those who are killing him. When Jesus, as he says, I thirst, cannot even give himself water, but has to be given it from a sponge on the end of a stick. It is the moment where Jesus seems to be displaying 
anything but glory and honor. He seems to be displaying anything but a crown. And the scripture says, we see Jesus, and he tells us that Jesus here is sharing with his brothers the flesh and blood that they bear. Our Lord Jesus Christ was an embryo. Our Lord Jesus Christ was a fetus. When John the Baptist encounters Jesus for the first time, it was not at the Jordan River. It was in utero. And John the Baptist is filled with the same Holy Spirit that will prompt him to say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the baby within the womb leaps in the presence, not of his potential Lord, but in the presence of his Lord. And Jesus bears this humanity all the way to the moment of death in uh, in the, the sort of execution that is the most shameful execution imaginable until he is placed in a borrowed grave. We often hear the rhetoric that abortion ought to be acceptable until the unborn child is viable. And what this typically means is until the unborn child is able to survive on his or her own outside of the womb. And yet none of us are viable. If we mean by that that we are able to exist without being connected to a larger world. The infant within the womb is dependent upon his or her mother for nutrition and for sustenance and for an ecosystem and an environment. You and I are dependent right now. We need air. We need water. We need food. We need the world around us. None of us are gods and none of us are machines. And Jesus, in identifying himself with his people in their humanity and identifying himself in suffering and identifying himself in death, is doing something, the scripture says here, so that he can partake of the same things, in verse 14, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, the devil. The ultimate issue here is a matter of spiritual warfare. What we are facing right now in a culture of death ought to demonstrate to us what we should already have known as Christians. Money and power abstracted from the kingship of Christ always turns violent. Slavery existed in this country because slavery propped up wealthy planters who believed that they could use the labor of other human beings to their own benefit, and they were willing to act violently for that. Human traffickers ship women and children all over the world because they believe that they can profit from that. The abortion industry is more than willing to receive young women who are in a moment of vulnerability and crisis because they can profit off of that. Jesus warned us about this 
when he says you cannot serve both God and mammon. He, he uses the language of mammon not in dead abstract terms. He personalizes it. This is not just something, but it becomes someone. Mammon is a jealous God, and mammon is armed to the teeth. In every generation, we will have to face this. And Jesus, in standing in solidarity with those that the rest of the world would consider to be the least, is demonstrating to us that one's worth and dignity does not come from one's usefulness. It comes intrinsically from the image of God. If we are going to be the people who follow Christ, we cannot just assert the sanctity of all human life in our sermons and in our teachings and in our voting guides and in in, in our advocacy. Our churches should demonstrate this. And we as evangelicals have often been the worst at taking the standards of the outside world and using them within Christ's body. Why are we constantly drawn to the testimonies of celebrity athletes and celebrity beauty queens and surprisingly wealthy people who have found the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's because we believe that somehow these sorts of testimonies will be more influential because the rest of the culture and the rest of the world values the things that those people have. And yet our witness is not in our sameness with the rest of the culture. Our witness and our power comes in the differentness of the kingdom of God, which has an entirely different set of priorities. One of the small things that you and I can do to advance a pro-life witness is to, within our own churches, step back from what we often call a commitment to excellence, in which the person reading Scripture is going to be able to flawlessly read Scripture, and the person offering the prayer is going to be able to get through the prayer without disrupting uh, the service. What if in our churches we had the scripture being read by a woman in the early stages of dementia with a shaking voice, and we aren't quite sure whether or not she's going to be able to finish it on her own. That might cause our services to go a little longer. That might cause a little bit of awkwardness within the service, but it would signify that the power that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ is not a self-generated power. The power of God is found in what the rest of the world calls weakness. What if that child with Down syndrome within our congregation, if we viewed him not as a charity project, but we viewed him as a future king of the universe, and we cultivated the spiritual gifts that he has, not only to be ministered to, but to minister to the rest of the body? 
to build up the rest of the body so that when the rest of the world says, why would you have a child who is going to have a life of such difficulty and suffering? Why would you not abort him? Our answer is he is not an idea. He is not a project. He is our brother and he has been gifted by the spirit of Christ and he is indispensable to us because Jesus has put him here and given him a calling and a vocation. If our churches reflected the fact that the power of God and the priorities of God are different from the power and priorities of the outside world, we could cut through the heart of what is behind the culture of death. The idea that somehow people who are deemed to be problems, people who are deemed to be crises, people who are deemed to be stumbling blocks, people who are deemed to be useless or disposable are no such thing. They are part of the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, those who lead the kingdom of God. What empowers the culture of death is invisibility. That's the reason why so many people don't want to look at the sonogram screen. They don't want to think about what is on the other end that this, that this being that they are encountering technologically is not a thing, but a person. But as we recognize that, we must ask, who is invisible to us? Who are the people around us that we are shielding our own eyes from? Who are the people that we do not want to encounter because we are afraid of the burdens that they will bring upon us? If we recognize that every single human being, born and unborn, bears the imprint of the Lord Jesus Christ, he shares flesh and blood with them, then we're going to be willing to risk. It is risky to welcome that unwed mother into your home. You don't know if you're going to be able to adequately care for, for her. You don't know if she's going to make the right decisions. You don't know what the end point of her life story is going to be. It is risky to welcome that child with fetal alcohol syndrome into your children's ministry because you don't know how much of the resources of your church are going to have to go into keeping things, uh, keeping things going for him or for her. It is risky to welcome orphans into your home and to, to bring them at your table as beloved sons and daughters. Those things can disrupt your life. Those things can mess up your life in the way that you view it. But these things are worth it, not because the investment pays off in the end, the way that the world sees it, but because the kingdom of God gives us a different perspective on who they are and who we are. But also notice that the cross here defines God's mercy. He says, Jesus shares flesh and blood so that he can destroy the one who has the power of death, the devil. The devil has a power that comes in two ways. It comes through deception and it comes through accusation. 
the forces of this present darkness will say to us, whatever you do, including acting violently toward another, you can keep it secret, you can keep it hidden, and there will be no long-term consequences for you. And then the devil turns and pivots immediately toward that with a word of accusation, I know who you are, I know what you've done. There is no one more pro-choice than the devil on the way into the abortion clinic, and there is no one more pro-life than the devil on the way out of the abortion clinic. He deceives and then he accuses without mercy. But the word of hope that we have in the cross is that the scripture tells us here that because our Lord Jesus offered up himself for his brothers and for his sisters as a high priest to make propitiation for the sins of the people, that we have the freedom that comes through the kind of mercy that does not excuse sin, but atones for sin. A couple years ago, Kermit Gosnell, the infamous abortion doctor, butchering women and children in Pennsylvania, was arrested. And the the account of what he had done, uh, even to the point of keeping trophies in a gruesome manner, from the lives of the children that he had destroyed in his office. It was all starting to be revealed. And I said at that point, we should pray for justice for Kermit Gosnell, and we should also pray that Kermit Gosnell would come to faith in Jesus Christ and would become our brother in Christ. I immediately heard from Christians who objected to that. Because they said, don't you understand how saying something like that trivializes the monster that Kermit Gosnell is? And my response was to say, who do you think you are? Who do we think we are? If the way that we are evaluating our standard before God is simply by measuring ourselves against people that we consider to be respectable to fall within what is expected with the grace of God, we have no idea the standards of the holiness of God in which every single one of us in this room deserve to be exiled from the presence of God. And what has reconciled us to God is not that we are less sinful than Kermit Gosnell. What has reconciled us to God is that we are hidden in Jesus Christ. And the problem here is that there are many people who are going to sit in our congregations who are going to assume that when we say whosoever believes is forgiven of all sin, they assume that that whosoever is for someone other than them. That the sin that we are mentioning are the sorts of sins that we use in our sermon illustrations. Those sins that aren't going to shock. Those sins that are not going to cause people's children to ask them what it is when they're driving home from the church service. Our message must be standing with Jesus in solidarity 
so that we stand up and speak for justice for all of those who are vulnerable, for all of those who are fatherless, for all of those who are annihilated. And yet we must speak to those who are guilty. Jesus has called us to sinners. And that means the kind of forgiveness that is coming with the gospel is not the kind of forgiveness that we often give. I'm going to let you go on that. I'm going to let you buy on that, but I'm watching you. No, 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 no. The scripture says that Jesus offers himself as a propitiation for the sins of the people, says that Jesus is standing and interceding for his people so that we have the boldness to approach the throne of grace. The message that we have for that woman who is being accused because she had the abortion. The message that we have for that man who is accused because he paid for the abortion or because he performed the abortion is not to say it's okay. The conscience knows it's not okay. The conscience testifies of the standards of the justice of God. The message that we have to give is far more liberating than that. Because we say everything that your heart accuses you of right now is true and more so. But you have already been arrested. You have already in Christ been indicted. You have already in Christ been executed under the curse of the law. And you cannot re-execute a corpse. Your identity is crucified with Christ so that you have already been through the judgment of God. There is no more judgment for you. And when God sees you, faithful, repentant sinner who is united to Jesus, he does not see you as that woman who had the abortion. He does not see you as that man who enabled the abortion. He sees you hidden in Christ so that he thinks of you exactly as he thinks of Jesus of Nazareth. This is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. So that when the moments come of condemnation, of remembering that act of violence, of remembering that act of bloodshed, as my friend Ray Ortland puts it, in those moments that you call to your mind, those are the moments when Jesus is loving you the most tenderly. He has sympathy. He intercedes. He prays for. He stands for. So that the message that we have to people who have been harmed and injured and even complicit in the culture of death is a message that ends with there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If we cling to and understand that gospel of the cross, then we are going to be the people who speak for justice. We're going to speak for justice. And we're going to be the people who speak of the justifying grace of God. At the same time. And as we do that in all of our various ministries, we're going to fail. 
We're going to make the wrong decisions on how to minister and how to advocate and how to speak. And we're going to need grace. And we're going to need grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. We're going to find ourselves in spiritual warfare because any time that you advocate for the vulnerable, there are forces invisible to you that will strike back. But we will find ourselves entering into the mission of Jesus himself. And when I looked at those footprints, I realized ice cream is a really small thing. Obeying your mother to go get something she needs, it's a really small thing. But in the context of his little life, it was not such a small thing. And in the great sweep of cosmic history, all of the things that we do, no matter how important we think they are, no matter how impactful we think they are, they're all just a blip. But Jesus tells us that if we are faithful in the small things, he is training us in those small things to have responsibility over great things. And so wherever we are in all of our ministries, we identify with the crucified Jesus Christ who counted himself among thieves. And we stand up for the unborn. We stand up for the aged. We stand up for the disabled. We stand up for the persecuted. We stand up for the immigrant. We stand up for the orphan. We stand up for the widowed. We stand up for the addicted. We stand up for those in prison. We stand up for the poor. We stand up and we say the image of God is more significant and more important than anyone's definition of usefulness. And when we do that, we will get in trouble. We will get in trouble in ministry because we will be ministering to all sorts of people who aren't easily ministered to and some won't like it. We will get in trouble politically because we will find ourselves loving and caring for people who don't fit in with the political program of whatever our ideology is. But are we servants of man or are we servants of Jesus Christ? And if we're servants of Jesus Christ, then we do not have fear of man. We instead are looking for a different sort of acclamation and we are informed by a different set of priorities. So when the rest of the world wants to dehumanize and depersonalize by saying fetus or embryo or fetal tissue or products of conception or various ethnic slurs or anchor baby or loser, our response is to stand up and say, we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We believe that life is better than death because death is dead and Jesus is alive. And we go to our own risk into hard and difficult places, which means we will hurt. Caring for the vulnerable means the risk and the sacrifice of oneself. That's part of what it means to take up a cross and to follow. We will hurt in ways that we can't even imagine now 
but it is worth it. And we will find ourselves limping toward a city that we've never seen except by faith. And behind us, in a world like this, there will be a trail of blood. But if we notice, it's not our own. Let's pray. Lord, would you give us the courage to stand up and to speak for justice for those who are in peril? And would you give us the courage and the freedom to offer mercy and to offer a mercy that comes freely through the cross of Jesus Christ? Would you make us into a gospel people who are ready to speak, you must be born again, and who are ready also to say there is nothing, nothing, nothing that cannot be overcome by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Thanks for joining us on this week's episode of the ERLC podcast. Be sure to subscribe at ERLC.com and join us next week as we hear from Tony Evans.